It is good to be with you this morning. Uh, we missed last week. Glad to be back. Um, if you are our guests, um, super glad you're here today. I know Annie was worried about making sure I had time to preach. It, it could be. I hope that it's not. But it could be that in a few minutes you might wish that she was back up here just because of the difficulty of the text we're getting ready to get into. Um, but I am trusting that the Lord wants to meet us this morning. And so I am really excited uh, to have the opportunity uh, to address you from God's Word. Now last week, if you remember, Samuel covered Revelation 20 on a, you know, at a high level. Uh, and as he mentioned, today we're going to actually do a deep dive into the first six verses of chapter 20, which is probably one of the most debated uh, sections in all of Scripture. In fact, there's actually, there's probably very little about this passage that's not under debate. <laughs> um, and one of the, perhaps the largest disagreement revolves around the meaning of the thousand years that John talks about there. Now, I know some of you are probably thinking, you know, I, you know, I, bet, the, I bet the pastors like cast lots and Josh drew the short straw and got this passage. But I just want, I just want to be very clear that that is not the case. I, I was very excited to preach this text. Um, again, I, I think the Lord has something very unique for us uh, in these first six verses of chapter 20. But as we've said already, in the history of the church, countless pages have been written or typed, and lots of hair has been pulled out over these six verses. And I am not so delusional as to think that in 45 minutes or less, I'm going to be able to answer every question that's ever been raised. So here are my two goals, right? They're very simple. Not necessarily easy, but they're simple. Number one, I'm going to try to explain the text in a way that I believe is most biblically faithful while also highlighting and working through some of the major interpretive challenges. And then second... I want to try to get to the blessing in verse 6 before it ceases to feel like a blessing, okay? So hopefully you've had a chance to listen to the podcast we put out a few days ago, um, just talking through, as Mike said, the differences between dispensational and covenant theology. In it, we hit uh, for a few minutes, just kind of briefly touched on the different millennial views, but in case you missed it, let me, missed it, let me just do a quick refresh on the three major views that have been put forward. And I'll just say again, all of these views could be held by those who also hold the covenant theology. I have a chart for you on the screen. Hopefully you can see that. I know it's, a, it's this is honestly the simplest chart I could find. Um, and so hopefully that serves as well. Um, so premillennialism says that the millennium represents a literal future thousand-year period, right? And that's the first one on the screen, the top one there. Premillennialism says that the millennial rep millennium excuse me, represents a literal future 1,000-year period that falls between the second coming of Christ and the final judgment. And generally speaking, premillennialism takes a more pessimistic outlook on the state of affairs prior to Christ's return. They would say that mankind is only going to grow in opposition to God, suppression of the truth, and oppression of his people until there's this final confrontation with God. Amillennialism, which you'll see actually on the bottom, I believe, sees that the thousand years is a symbolic number representing the entire period of time between Christ's first and second comings. 
wherein Christ reigns with deceased saints, right, in heaven until he returns to establish the new heavens and the new earth, right, and bring the kingdom in fullness. In other words, the millennium is happening now, but it is more spiritual in nature. And we might say that amillennialism, with its emphasis on the already not yet aspects of the kingdom, has more of a realistic feel to it, seeing both the kingdom of God and its opposition growing in tandem. And then finally, postmillennialism, which you see in the middle, would see this thousand-year period, potentially literal, maybe symbolic, but what postmillennialism believes is that this period occurs on the earth between the first and second comings of Christ, but following gradual gospel expansion and the eventual submission of the nations to the lordship of Christ. In other words, the millennium is something that we work toward. But based on the kingdom parables like that of the leaven and the, of the mustard seed, postmillennials would also say that we can have a certainty that the great commission will be fulfilled. So we might say that postmillennials carry an optimism right, about the state of things prior to Christ's second coming. So there's our recap, all right? Take a breath. As I mentioned in the recent podcast, there are highly respected theologians who subscribe to all of these views, right? Or I should say, to each of these views. You can't really hold to all of them. Um, So what we want to be careful of here, because there's been godly men and women throughout church history, even at, at present, who hold to these different views, as we've said, we want to have a grace and a humility with those who hold other positions. But we don't want to use the difficulty of this text or the fact that it's a third-tier issue just to just say, oh, it doesn't matter, right? It does matter. It's in the Bible. Our job is to wrestle with the text and ask God to give us light. And so let's do that together now before we jump in, okay? Will you pray with me? Spirit, I pray that you would illumine your word to us now. Guide my heart, guide my mind, guide my words. Help us not just to understand this text, but to understand why it matters for us. Help us not just to see clearly, but to feel deeply what you have for us in this passage. I pray that you would give us more light and love for Christ and stir in us greater faith and hope and grant us the grace to patiently endure until Christ returns. And Lord, now would you grant me humility and wisdom and authority as I preach your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our first point this morning is the chaining of Satan. All right, so if you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 20. We'll begin reading in verse 1. Verse 1 says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So in his vision, John sees an angel under the authority of God coming down from heaven with a chain and a key. 
And this is not just any key. This is the key to the abyss, a place which in Scripture symbolizes a sort of container for fallen angels. Like it's the demonic realm. So John sees this angel essentially grab Satan, wrap him with a chain, right? Bind him up, toss him into the abyss, shut the door, and lock it behind him. And John tells us that the reason this is done to Satan is to prevent him from deceiving the nations any longer until the thousand years has transpired, at which point he must be released for a short period of time. Now, the question that we're trying to answer is, when did or when will this period take place? When will what occurs here happen? Well, our first interpretive challenge this morning actually comes in the very first word or phrase in, uh, in verse 1, where John says, Then I saw. Now, some would argue that what John is communicating here with this phrase is a chronological order of cosmic events, meaning that what he's trying to tell us here is that the events symbolized in chapter 20 will occur after the events symbolized in chapter 19, right? But listen to what G.K. Beale says here. He says, often in Revelation, the word and functions as a transitional word, simply indicating a new vision, and not necessarily a chronological sequence. And where this phrase, and I saw, occurs in Revelation, followed by a reference to an angel coming down or out of heaven and having some kind of power, it always introduces a vision either reverting to a time before the preceding section or occurring at the same time as the preceding section. So what's his point? His point is this. The usage of this first word or phrase in Revelation 20 throughout the rest of the book of Revelation actually makes it far more likely that what John is communicating here is the order of the visions, right, and not necessarily the order of the events. Is everybody tracking with me? So John is communicating with this, and I saw. So something happened, and then I saw something else happen. What he's saying is that it's not like these one event happened, and then I saw another event happen. What he's saying is, I saw this vision, and then I saw this vision, right? Now, some have rightly pointed out, so the challenge, here's the challenge. We have to figure out how this binding of Satan relates to the deceiving of the nations in verses 2 and 3. And some have pointed out, and I, again, I think rightly, that the language that John uses here would, would certainly seem to suggest a very significant, if not complete, restriction of Satan's activity during the thousand-year period, whenever that is, right? Because he's like, he's bound, and then he's thrown into the pit, and then it's shut, and then it's sealed. Like, that sounds pretty complete. So anyone with a basic familiarity of Scripture, right, and eyeballs in their head can see that Satan is very much alive and active right now, right? So this this has, this thousand years has to refer to some future time period, right? Well, if we look at Mark 3, Jesus provides us with a very illuminating parable when he addresses those accusing him of casting out demons with satanic power. He says this in verse 27 of that passage. He says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds 
the strong man. Then he may plunder his house. Now, the strong man in that passage is Satan, right? And Jesus is the one who's doing the binding. But here's the connection to our text. In times past, right, the Gentiles were heathen nations that worshiped idols and and demons. They were, as Ephesians 2 says, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But in his death and resurrection, the light of the world pierced the darkness, not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles, right? And then he commissions his followers to go and make disciples of all the nations, right? Which commission we see being fulfilled in the book of Acts, right? The gospel is being proclaimed. Disciples are being made of all the nations. So no longer are the nations categorically deceived with regards to Yahweh as God and Christ as king as in times past. Because of the work of Christ, Satan has been severely restricted in his ability to deceive the Gentile nations as a whole and prevent the spread of the gospel. Kind of reminds me of what Paul says in in 2 Timothy 2.9. So he's like in prison for preaching the gospel, and he says, I am suffering, bound with chains, right? Bound, right? Just like Satan. I'm bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound even in Paul's experience, which we, we, we sort of see mirrored in the churches in Acts and then also in Revelation, we can, we can feel that already not yet tension, right? Like I'm bound, right? I'm suffering, but the word of God is not bound, right? The gospel is moving forward at the same time that Christ is, excuse me, that Paul is in prison. But, but just think about this for a moment, right? This message which started with Jesus and his tiny little enclave of Jewish followers in this small country in the middle of e- in the middle east excuse me now has spread to the very ends of the earth even in the 21st century right we saw unparalleled persecution and unparalleled expansion of the gospel in the world happening alongside one another But if we look back at Revelation, we're giving another clue regarding what this binding refers to when we see what Satan does in verses 7 through 9, which Samuel covered last week. So when Satan is released from his prison, this is what he is said to do in verses 7 through 9. You can look in your text. It says, And when the angels, excuse me, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. And will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. What does he do? To gather them for battle. Their number is like the sands of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Let me me just give us a quick illustration here that I hope will kind of help bring some of these things home. Um, consider Chick-fil-A for a moment, okay? Let's get a little... Chick-fil-A, right? If you drive by Chick-fil-A after the service, what you will find is that the doors are closed, right? Nobody's home. 
Nothing's happening. No business is being done. Why? Because company policy does not permit them to operate on Sunday. Now, you might get the sense of like, wow, my goodness, like they're really, like nothing's happening here. Yeah, in one perspective, you're, you're absolutely right. Nothing is happening at Chick-fil-A, right? They are restricted on Sundays. However, if you stop by tomorrow, what you'll quickly discover is that they are not categorically bound, right? There's plenty of chicken minis being sold, right? There's plenty of waffle fries being sold. Chick-fil-A is bound with regards to Sundays, Now, what I'm arguing for, and I believe what we see in our text and in the rest of Scripture, is that, yes, in verse 2 of our text, John is speaking about a thorough binding, but not on the activity of Satan as a whole, but specifically with regards to his work to blind the nations to the gospel, right? And as we just read in verses 7 through 9, with regard to his deceiving the nations to gather them together in an all-out unified assault against the people of God, right? So he is bound in a very specific way, but in a very conclusive sense. There will be a day when Satan is released, right? And he will gather the forces of the nations against God and his people, but not until God permits. And this is, this is where in our passage we see both the great patience of God as well as his providence, right? He's giving people more time to repent, right? We have more opportunities, right, to share the gospel and to see rebellious men and women come to trust in Jesus. But I believe John also gives us a hint about the timing of the millennium here in verse 2 when he describes Satan as the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Maybe. If so, it's because we've already seen that in one other place and only one other place in the book of Revelation, namely Satan's defeat in Revelation 12. So if we go there, what we see in verse 9 of Revelation 12, here's what it reads, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth. And his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even to death. So here again, we see that fourfold description of Satan And we also see him called the deceiver of the whole world, right? Another verbal cue that there's a close connection with our text. So there's, what we want to ask is, what is that connection between the vision in chapter 12, where Satan is thrown down from heaven, 
and the vision of chapter 20, where he is said to be thrown into the abyss. Hold on to that question because we have to go to verses 4 through 6 to find out. Second point this morning is the reigning of the saints. The reigning of the saints. So Revelation 20, verse 4, John says this. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So here the scene shifts to a heavenly one, right? In verse four. Now certain millennial positions would argue that these are earthly thrones where believers are ruling with Christ on the earth, but I think that's unlikely for several reasons. First, almost every other time the word throne is used in the book of Revelation, its location is in heaven, okay? But second, with the word thrones, there seems to be a reference not only to Revelation 4, where we read about the thrones of the elders around the throne of God, but also to Daniel 7, uh, verses 9 through 10, and also verse 22, where we read this. Let's be up on the screen. Daniel writes, And I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Verse 10, The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Verse 22, And judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So in light of Revelation 4 and Daniel 7, I think a better translation of the Greek text in verse 4 might read this way, right? So pay attention here. This is, I think this is really, really important. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given for them, even the souls of those who had been beheaded, because of their testimony and on account of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received the mark on the forehead and on their hands. So whom John is seeing on these thrones are deceased saints, not only martyrs, but all the faithful ones, all the faithful souls who have died in Christ. To use the language of Daniel 7, what John is describing in verse 4 is judgment being handed down right, from the heavenly court regarding these deceased saints. And this is where we find the connection between Revelation 12 and Revelation 20, okay? If instead of seeing this binding, the one we saw in chapter 20, if instead of seeing that binding as some future event, we instead take these visions alongside one another and see Satan's being thrown down from heaven in chapter 12 and Satan's being thrown down into the abyss in chapter 20 as happening simultaneously. 
right? In other words, we're, we're describing the same event from two different camera angles. If, if we look at it that way, what we get is this. Because of the work of Christ, Satan has lost his power to categorically deceive the nations and stop God in his plan to redeem a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And not only that, but the accuser of God's people has also lost his power of accusation against those redeemed people of God before the throne of God, such that when the courts of heaven hand down their verdict, rather than hearing guilty and experiencing the terrible judgment we've read about throughout the entire book of Revelation, Lamb be praised, we, we see that the court has ruled in favor of the saints. Right? What's, what's more, the people of God are privileged to stand with God in judgment against their accuser through their trust in and identification with God, even unto death. These souls have conquered Satan just as their Savior did, so that not only will they rise with him, but they will also sit on thrones and reign with him. They are united with him from the first to the last. Dennis Johnson says this regarding verse four. He says, fidelity, not the circumstances or method of their death, distinguishes the saints as qualified to share the Lamb's rule. Now note, however, he doesn't say that fidelity or faithfulness to Christ qualifies them. Key distinction but rather it distinguishes them or marks them as qualified to reign with Christ. For Colossians 1, 12 says that God through Christ has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. But this leads us to our final interpretation uh, or challenge, uh, challenging piece uh, to interpret. And hopefully you're still hanging with me. If the thrones that John talks about in verse 4 are heavenly, right? as I'm arguing for, if the throne that John talks about in verse 4 are heavenly, and these souls are deceased saints in heaven that apparently await glorified bodies as the Scripture teaches, we come to a real difficulty with John's next statement. It says, They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. And this, this is the first resurrection. Did you catch that? Here, here's the rub. Seeing the millennial reign as occurring now in heaven, again, as I'm arguing for, forces us to define the coming of life of the saints in verse 4 as spiritual, while the coming of the life of the rest of the dead, presuming unbelievers, um, after the millennium in verse 5 is seen as physical. So what we need to try to figure out is do we have any biblical warrant at all for interpreting the same word in the same passage in two different senses? In other words, are there any places in Scripture, where we see the word life being used in the same passage in both a spiritual and a physical sense. In fact, we do. 
Um, Romans 6, 4 through 11 and John 5, 24 through 29 are actually two passages where we see very clearly both senses being used. But how do we determine what sense John is using in our text? And this is, again, where I would borrow from Beale. Try to listen carefully to what he says here. The immediate and broader context of Revelation must determine the meaning. Consider that the second death in verse 6 clearly refers to a spiritual death of the unrighteous involving conscious, eternal suffering. On the other hand, the death of the righteous mentioned in verse 4, right, the souls of those who've been beheaded, refers to a literal, physical death. So if there are two different kinds of death, it's plausible to infer that there are two different resurrections that would reflect the same dual nature of the death. And this is, this is the key part here. That is, the first physical death of saints translates them into the first spiritual resurrection in heaven, whereas the second physical resurrection of the ungodly translates them into a second spiritual death. And this interpretation suits the thought of verse 6, since a first eternal spiritual resurrection is said to be the minimal condition needed to prevent one from suffering a second eternal spiritual death. So that's a mouthful. And I, and I recognize if you're like me, your, your, your mental in, engines are kind of redlining at this point, right? But I'm going to repeat that one more time. And I want, I want, to, I want you to try to track along with me in your text as we, as we go. So the first physical death of the saints, right, the souls of those beheaded in verse 4, translates them into the first spiritual resurrection in heaven that came to life and reigned with Christ, verse 4. Whereas the second physical resurrection of the ungodly, that's where we see in verse 5, the rest, the dead, did not come to life. That translates them into the second spiritual death, which we saw last week in verse 15 where we read, that they were thrown into the lake of fire. Now, hopefully that's clear. If not, take a picture of the screen, and you can go back and kind of review that later, okay? But that brings us to verse 6, okay? This is where I was trying to get before it ceased to feel like a blessing, all right? Here's the blessing, and, and you know, as I, as I read this verse, I can almost imagine John, who we heard in, I think, in chapter 1, describe himself as, you know, uh, to the churches as their brother and partner in the tribulation, in the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Christ Jesus. I can almost imagine him, like, stopping from him, like, putting down his pen, or whatever the writing instrument was, and reflecting on the Beatitudes in Christ's Sermon on the Mount, right? So, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
And under the inspiration of the Spirit, he thinks to himself, you know, I think I've got one more I could add to that. Verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over these ones, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Right? Those same slain, almost pitiful souls, right, that we saw in chapter 6, crying out from the altar, How long, O Lord, before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? We now see from a different camera angle in, in Revelation chapter 20, when he says, Over such the second death has no power but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Like they might have died once, but they will never die again. In his own life-giving sacrifice, the lamb absorbed God's wrath for them and covered them with his blood. Now the judgment of heaven has been handed down in their favor. Right? And he who was slain as a sacrificial lamb also conquered death for them and reigns as a victorious lion. So they conquer and so they reign. For all who follow him must follow in his path, his pattern, the cross and then the crown. And in losing their lives, they, like he, have found their lives. And now they've begun to be what God intended for his people all along right? From the very beginning, a kingdom of royal priests, perfectly happy, perfectly holy in him, eternally participating in his rule and worship. And that, that is why they are blessed. Now, I don't know about you, but meditating on that, right, those realities about death makes me think a lot differently about dying in Christ, right? It changes the way that we look at taking our final breath. So here's how I want to end for us this morning. I want to just read the lyrics of a song written by another pastor in our family of churches. It's a song entitled, It Is Not Death to Die. Uh, the words will be up on the screen for you. It is not death to die, to leave this weary road and join the saints who dwell on high, who found their home with God. It is not death to close the eyes long dimmed by tears and wake in joy before your throne, delivered from our fears. It is not death to fling aside this earthly dust and rise with strong and noble wing to live among the just. It is not death to hear the key unlock the door that sets us free from mortal years to praise you evermore. Oh, Jesus, conquering the grave, your precious blood has power to save. Those who trust in you 
will in your mercy find that it is not death to die. And from meditating on the glories of Revelation 19 through 20, I took the liberty to write two more verses. It is not death to hear the verdict handed down and then to wed our bridegroom dear in shining bridal gown. It is not death to feast with one who loves us so to gaze in wonder on his face and perfect likeness show. It is not death to die when cross begets a crown for then as happy holy ones on thrones will gather round. It is not death to reign with Christ the risen king as royal priest who unrestrained are only worshiping. Oh, Jesus, conquering the grave, your precious blood has power to save. Those who trust in you will in your mercy find that it is not death to die. So that's how we're going to end this morning. I want to pray for us. I don't know if this would be the case, but I want to offer it. If there are some here that have a fear of death, I would like to pray for you after the message this morning. Um, so, you know, again, as, as folks are dismissing, if, if, if that just resonates with you, it's like, man, like, you know, I, I just live in fear of dying. Or dying has always just felt like, eh, I don't know, like, I, I really, I, uh, you know, again, it's not that we look forward to it, but it's just like, I, I just have, I just kind of want to stay here. Like, I, I don't want to have to, I don't want to have to leave behind this stuff that I have, um, like, I feel like everything's going pretty well for me, and, I, and it feels really hard to imagine, like, leaving all of this goodness behind. Like, I, again, I would just love to be able to pray for you after uh, the, the service this morning. So can we go ahead and pray, and then we're going to dismiss, uh, and then if you would like some prayer, uh, we'll have some folks, and I'll be uh, up here as well in the front. Father, thank you that because of Jesus, it is not death to die. Not only are we united with you in your death, but those who trust in you, Lord, we are also united with you in your life and in your resurrection and in your ascension and in your reigning and Lord, I pray that you would help us to live in the good of that even now and that already not yet tension that we've talked about that we so often refer to. Lord, even though we know that the millennium, if what we said is true, is happening now in heaven, Lord, I pray that we would live in the good of your kingdom even now on earth. Lord, there are already aspects that we get to participate in here 
And Lord, I pray that you would help us to live as a kingdom of royal priests on the earth, as those who participate in worship and in your reign now over sin and over Satan, Lord, as we are ambassadors for the gospel, as we take the hope of Jesus to our neighbor and to the nations. Lord, would you be glorified in our lives and in our death? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the comfort that it brings. Lord, I pray that your people would be blessed as they lead, that they would leave with this blessing upon their hearts. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.